Hello, everybody. Welcome to our experience. My name's Chad, and I'm sitting next to my partner, Tom. And this week, we're talking about another leading, not bleeding issue. And this time, it's billing for collaborative pharmacy practice. So, you know, I just want to scream. I wish we could flash reimbursement, reimbursement, reimbursement on the screen, because that's what this session is about. So a loophole was created with COVID-19 and how clinicians could bill incident to a physician. This opened a door for pharmacists practicing in nursing homes. Suddenly, the barrier of direct supervision was relaxed to general supervision, and activities around medication management could be billed to insurance or to Medicare through the physician. So we're going to talk about that today, where that flexibility stands, how to get moving on this if you are a pharmacist practicing in these settings. And our guest today is Jaron Stout, who has really been a leader in this. And they talk about disasters and emergencies creating opportunities. And that's exactly essentially what happened here. And people that are prepared can take advantage of that. And that's, Jaron, I feel like that's what you did. You, you saw an opening and you drove through it to, yeah. to better the care for your patients and to create an opportunity for yourself as a pharmacist and subsequently something you can share with other pharmacists. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a, a great opportunity an unexpected one. And it's opened up a lot of doors and given us an opportunity to prove that, you know, direct supervision may not exactly be a full requirement for long term. So yeah, and, and, and just explain to the audience what that means. We could always bill incident to. So if you had a relationship with a physician, you could bill some services <laughs> through that physician, and then that physician would get reimbursed and then pay you for your services. But in order to do that, you had to be in the building with that physician which we all know as consultant pharmacists in nursing homes that it's not common that you're happen to be in the building at the same time and it's not routine. And then there was another caveat to that, which was if you were in the building at the same time and you wanted to bill your services, you could do it as long as that physician wasn't billing on that particular patient that same day. So that created some logistical barriers around whether or not pharmacists could use this to create a revenue stream and get paid for their services. When COVID hit, because we weren't going into nursing homes and we were doing a lot of things with telephonic and telemedicine, they relaxed that to general supervision, which meant the pharmacist could perform their service and bill for it as long as they had a way of getting in touch with the physician electronically. And that's called general supervision. And that's the thing that we would like to hang on to going forward so that these opportunities could be established between physicians and pharmacists and these billing methods could could work to create a revenue line. Is that a fair description? Absolutely. That's a fair description. And I also want to, you know, add on to that to clarify what these flexibilities have done and what they don't include. But first of all, these flexibilities are in place through the end of the year. Uh, the PHE has expired, but the flexibilities in place from the PHE expired at the end of the year. That being said, there is still some talk about extending the general supervision flexibility to the end of next year. That is a possibility. And there's still also some talks of making general supervision a permanent change. So they're still in talks and they have plenty of time through the end of the year to kind of figure that out. But another thing that a lot of people mix up as, as far as these flexibilities go, the flexibilities, like you said, include general supervision. So it made it so that we didn't have to be in the building at the same time. And if you think about how NPs and MPs function in nursing homes, they never show up 
on the same day because it doesn't make any sense. Because like you said, you can't both bill for the same patient on the same day. They always schedule so that they're never in the building at the same time. But when you do incident two, you have to be in the building at the same time, thus creating more barriers where you have to coordinate heavily to make sure you don't overlap and see the same patient. Now, another thing that a lot of people have misunderstood about incident two is the flexibility of of whether or not pharmacists were able to do it in the past prior to the flexibilities. And that's a, a common misconception because the incident two rules specifically state that auxiliary personnel can be delegated these visits. And a lot of people think that pharmacists were not previously considered auxiliary personnel, but that is actually not true. And I want to make this very clear because this is unfortunately very frustrating because this is something that was clarified nine years ago. So, and ironically, it wasn't even pharmacists who requested this clarification. The American Academy of Family Physicians had members of their organization reach out to them and say, hey, we hired a pharmacist as part of our medical group to perform incident two visits. But when we looked at the regulations, it says auxiliary personnel and it doesn't include a pharmacist, but it does say or other. So they reached out to their professional organization, AAFP, and AAFP reached out to CMS and requested clarification. And they went publicly on the record to answer their question saying, yes, a pharmacist is auxiliary personnel. So here we are nine years later, and as a profession, we haven't done anything about it. And still, nobody within our profession, hardly anybody knows that it's an available opportunity for us to seize in collaborating with physicians. So now that the flexibility is in place, it allows us to stretch outside of just clinics. And now we can stretch this into nursing homes and make it scalable and take our profession of pharmacy consulting and nursing homes to the next level, something we're long overdue to do. No, I totally agree. So, and, and with respect to the, the time frame of when the flexibility might end, I think the audience should understand that this telemedicine flexibility is not specific to pharmacists. So there's a groundswell of support that some of the things that were delivered via telehealth during the pandemic were good things and should continue. So I think there's a very high probability that they will allow telemedicine and general supervision to continue indefinitely. The real key there is just to make sure that it does outline areas or does specify that pharmacists can be part of that. And I think that there's a high probability of that. And then ultimately that leads into your comment, Jaron, that it exists. So let's do it. And how do we teach people that it exists and let's do it? I am the consummate ask for forgiveness versus ask for permission guy. So if it says other or it's silent or it doesn't really say you can't, then do it. Let's do it and make them tell us that we can't or make them challenge it at the end of the day. So I think you're, you're right on with how do we push this out so that more pharmacists are empowered to try to take advantage of the, the rules as they exist. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. However, I think you would agree with me in saying that most people in our profession don't approach things that way. And, <laughs> so that's probably um, true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that when you look at the regulations, there's actually a lot of pharmacists who work in a clinic setting 
but and, and are able to bill incident two services, but they never ever bill for high complexity codes. Meaning, for instance, that they can build, uh, do a, a thirty minute consult with a patient and then only bill for ten minutes of that because they're afraid of billing too high of a complexity or for too much time because they're auxiliary personnel. With that in mind, when you look through the incident two regulations. There is nowhere in there at all that says when performed by a pharmacist, incident two services can never be billed for high complexity codes. Nothing even remotely uh, stating that is uh, available in those regulations. So there's really no reason for us to be so overly conservative, conservative. and afraid of, yeah. of, of taking advantage of our, these opportunities and sh- letting our services shine and show themselves. Well, and, and I recently had a meeting with Lee Davidian, who you know is helping us with this effort in the, in the coalition, working with you and working with ASCP. And she described it in a very, she's an attorney. She used to work for ASCP a number of years ago. So some of you might recognize her name, but you know, I like using the rules against people. So she made it clear that if you spend 45 minutes with a patient and you're doing complex activity and you bill for the, the low code, the, the 15 minute code that you're really creating a kickback risk because you've just provided a complex service and only gotten paid, you know, for the 15 minute service. So you've given more than you build, which arguably could be considered a kickback. So you should be, if you're performing a complex task, you should be billing for that complex task and there shouldn't be any risk to that. So again, echoing your comment that we don't need to be overly conservative in, in actuality, being overly conservative might be a risk. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, the, the legal term that she uses with that is inducement. So that's yeah. an inducement of services. And it, it doesn't make sense to do that when you legally you are required to bill for your time and appropriately bill for that service. So it makes sense that we should, you know, not be so scared of, of showing our value by any means. I think that's something we've historically done as well. We're conservative and afraid of showing charging too much, which I think is another issue just in consulting in general, where I think we allowed ourselves to not charge enough for so long that now we've put less effort into it. And now most people just aren't willing to pay what we're worth as a result. And, you know, that's probably just my opinion. You know, may not maybe not everyone will agree with me on that. But in my experience, that's what I've seen. So, Jaron, let me ask you, you know, I come from an operations background. Many of our listeners are or operational people and haven't spent that time in a clinic clinic or consulting. And then we have some people that obviously are trying to get into long-term care. Maybe they're combo pharmacies trying to find creative ways to, to generate revenue. So can you get even more basic for me on, on kind of breaking down what type of services that we're talking about and what type of revenue could a pharmacist look at, look at billing? Okay. So when talking about incident two services, this is kind of the higher end of available opportunities we have to collaborate with physicians and, and perform billable services. And just think of it like, so incident two has several requirements. You have to be employed by the medical group. It doesn't matter if it's W-9 or, or if it's 1099, you can be contracted or fully employed. It has to be follow-up visits, right? So f- just think of it like this. We do not diagnose. So we allow the physician to do that initial assessment. And then they are the ones who make the diagnosis. And then they hand it off to the pharmacist. And based on, you know, what their conditions are, they say, okay, I'm going to hand you off to the pharmacist and they'll manage these chronic conditions. 
there's, you know, several requirements to go into. Those are kind of the key components. You have to be employed by them. You have to perform follow-up visits. It cannot be for a new complaint. So, you know, it's kind of tricky on that because sometimes that new complaint can be related to a drug that was started two weeks ago. So if you were to perform a follow-up visit because they have a new complaint, I wouldn't say that there's a new complaint. I would say it's a follow-up visit to um, confirm uh, what the problem is with the recent medication change, right? So little things like that will, will help us kind of make those visits. But now think of it like this, since the physician is the one billing for the service and they're the ones receiving that payment and then we're kind of doing a revenue sharing from there, it is billed as if the physician themselves performed that task. They are reimbursed 100% of what the physician would have been paid to perform that task. And I don't want to get too specific because reimbursement will vary based on a region that you're, you're out of. But I would say on average, a physician reimbursement will range between $200 and $300 per hour, giving us plenty of wiggle room to make it a valuable and profitable service uh, for a pharmacist to perform tasks and help improve the medication management for these patients. Now, that's just one of the many opportunities. That one, like I said, is the highest end one that has the, the most wiggle room. And in our preliminary discussions that, uh, that Lee Davidian has had with CMS, one of the things that they've said is, well, you know, why do we want to extend these flexibilities if you're not even doing the little things that we've left out for pharmacists to do? Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, just collaborative practice agreements. They're still not widely accepted and utilized. What about uh, CCM services? RPM services, BHI services, annual wellness visits. These are all very easy things that historically don't even require direct supervision. They're ones that uh, have historically and permanently always required general supervision. It can be done from any location kind of remotely and and whatnot. So now the, the problem with those ones is they are not reimbursed as well. So there's not as much wiggle room. But that being said, that's why we need to utilize pharmacy techs to help with data gathering, doing some of the footwork in some of these clinical services, because it allows us as pharmacists to just utilize our expertise rather than wasting our time with all these other additional tasks to data gathering and whatnot. So there are several services available. I think a couple of questions in there. I'm hoping I covered them all. No, you did. And and it kind of leads to the next thing I was thinking about. You know, you mentioned there's things that we've been able to do, but but really don't do. I think MTM is a good example of that. That's been available since 2006. And pharmacists simply just don't want to do it. And I understand why. But, you know, I'd like to get your perspective on kind of, you know, the goal of the MTM. Let me take a step back. The goal of the MTM originally was designed to help more of a of a deeper dive, to be more of a holistic review, not just dispense medications, but to really consult that patient that maybe does not live in a nursing home, that lives outside of a, the care of a nurse. And yet I find pharmacists almost begrudgingly doing MTMs like, oh, this is a waste of my time and I don't get paid a whole lot to do this. I don't, or don't get paid anymore to do this. Kind of take me through a little bit. I'm, I'm using that as an example. You might have other examples, but kind of what's went wrong to keep us from really reluctantly doing MTMs or, or avoiding them? Yes. You know, this is a great question. And this is just my opinion. I think MTM is a perfect example of, you know, kind of the issues that we run into as pharmacists, as far as payment goes for our services. First of all, doing it 
in a pharmacy, I think, creates barriers. And this was very evident during COVID when we started vaccinating in pharmacies, which was great. But now we have quotas to meet while giving vaccines at the same time. And it was creating a lot of burnout. So having the dispensing duties and then having MTMs added on top of that was a, a big ask for a lot of pharmacies. And second of all, the, one of the bigger issues that we run into is that insurance companies, because we've historically not performed services, insurance companies really don't know what we're worth or how to pay us. And I think that's one of the bigger issues we run into with uh, trying to get provider status is even when we get it, I'm not convinced that in a lot of situations we're going to get paid up to the market level services that we would be providing. And MTMs are a perfect example of that. A lot of pharmacies were unwilling to do it, A, because they had dispensing duties to do, and it conflicted with their time of dispensing and the time they had to commit to do that to meet their parameters and their requirements and their quotas. But then they also had to add that on top of it. And so they didn't have quite the, the drive to do that because of the payment on top of the fact that it was hard to squeeze into their busy schedules. So those are, in my opinion, those are the two big barriers that really were created with MTMs. And uh, I know that a clinical care group run by uh, Stuart Stevens, he tried to make it so that independent consultants could get MTMs and it worked for a while, but I think some fell through with the negotiations. But I think having some pharmacists who specialize just in providing services and are not, you know, tied heavily to dispensing tasks and functions, I think would create a lot more opportunity and ability for pharmacists to make an impact with MTMs and, and as well as other billable services. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Let me make a comment on that. Cause I think there's a lot, there's a lot in that, that question yeah, for and, sure. in that answer. Yeah. I think sometimes pharmacy, and this is being generalizing pharmacists think that provider status is a, a wave of a magic wand and they're going to pass right. it. And the next day we're going to get paid for services, but that's really not real. Like, that's not, no, that's not going to happen. The, the pharmacist of the future, if we're doing our jobs right and we're creating opportunities for pharmacists, we being the government payer apparatus, not not ASCP, but ASCP trying to influence that, you're going to see pharmacists paid in multiple revenue streams. One of those revenue streams will be the traditional revenue stream of, you know, the, the money that you make by dispensing the medication. One of those revenue streams will be medication therapy management, which to be fair, is an unfunded mandate. They said to participate in Medicare insurance company, you have to provide this. And then they gave them some very global rules. One of the rules they didn't give them was that you actually have to do it. Like they do it, but you know, they try, they've set up phone banks, they make phone calls to people. Right. If they get a hold of you, great. If they don't get a hold of you, great. No one's holding them accountable to actually right. completing them. And I think the one thing I want every single pharmacist in the world to understand is MTM literally was designed and put in place to engage the patient or the patient's caregiver in their plan, their medication management plan. So it has nothing to do with adjusting your diabetes medication to get your blood glucose in control. <laughs> it has to do with saying to the patient or the patient's caregiver, I think we should 
take this approach with your diabetes medications to get your blood glucose under control. And I hope, I know that that sounds like I just said the same thing, but I hope that people <laughs> hear the difference. The difference is you're, there's a clinical decision that you're making as a pharmacist. That would be billed as an incident to a physician function. The MTM is communicating that plan with that patient and that caregiver. Those are two distinct different things. And I'm going to make one more distinction for pharmacists that work in skilled nursing facilities. Your role in a skilled nursing facility, you are the guardian of the profession of pharmacy in that skilled nursing facility. You are responsible for the storage of medications, the handling of medications, the administration of the medication, the process by which nursing homes order medications and get their medications delivered. And then you're responsible for a set of regulatory requirements that may have some sort of attachment to clinical so you're responsible to make sure antipsychotics are dose reduced on a routine basis, that there's good rationale for those medications. It is not diabetes management, chronic care management. That's really not what MRR is. It's not. So we get into discussions about incident two billing, MTM, getting paid to deliver a vaccine, all of these layers of revenue are all separate and distinct and can all be piled on to create yeah. a wonderful opportunity for pharmacists. But that is ultimately super highly complex, which is why we have gerunds out there yeah. leading the way and discovering it all so that we can go out and educate on it. Because I, I, I get the question all the time, well, you're already doing MRR, so you, why would you need to bill incident too? No, we're not. That's not That's the good. function. Now, yeah. you might argue later if Jaron's generating $100,000 a year through incident two billing and he's generating his normal you know, drug regimen review charges as you know, per bed charges for consulting to that nursing home, that maybe those need to be less because you know it's really just focusing on storage handling and some of those aspects and the clinical piece is being reimbursed by incident 2 and the communication with families and caregivers and patients is being reimbursed by MTM you could argue those things but they're distinct yeah. and they're different well, they're, they're, right. different. they're layered they're different payers yeah. Yeah. so you could layer those on right. top of each right. other and now you know for that 1 hour you're getting not just the consulting fee that you're charging the, yeah. the nursing home, but you're getting the MTM fee, and then you may be getting the the incident two you know fee, yeah. and can really make the most of that hour or that yeah. that day. The the one point seven three billion dollar question, Jaron, is one <laughs> point, and I only say that because that's the cost of the ECAPS legislation <laughs> that gives pharmacists provider status with context in testing, treating, and vaccinating, but. So that question, that million dollar question is, all these things exist. Are we already providers and shouldn't we be using all these mechanisms to generate revenue? Absolutely. You know, I think we have to use any stepping stones we have available at our fingertips to, to prove our value so that we can expand and take our profession to the next level. And I think one of the things that you were touching on there is just diversification, we need to diversify our revenue streams within our profession to make ourselves more valuable to the healthcare team in a collaborative effort. And, you know, to what you were saying, in a perfect world, a pharmacist, you know, makes, you know, does their chart review and submits it to the medical director with a recommendation. And that medical director in a perfect world would take that recommendation and generate a billable visit out of it. Yeah. Now, incident two just allows us to do that for them and then come to them and say, here's what I found. 
I would discuss it with the resident and here's what we can do to fix the problem and bam, it, it's all done on their behalf and they, they profit from it as well. Right. So those are two different services. And I will say that that, you know, is something if, if we want to take on these services, CCMs, annual wellness visits, incident two services, we just need to have clearly defined protocols of what tasks and what services we are going to perform under each specific billable service. And that way we show that each one is separate and distinct from each other and that they are billable and not double dipping. Yeah. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask the same, a different $1.73 billion question. <laughs> so, and I'm going to leave MTM out of it because there are some complexities with MTM that I don't think have really been solved for the skilled nursing environment yet, but we're getting paid for consulting, doing our DRR, MRR, however you want to call it. There's the opportunity with incident two billing. Can you, Jaron, right now, sit down with another pharmacist and lay out, here's how your practice should work and could work. And at the end of the day, you will be able to do this, get paid a, a commiserate salary with a pharmacist and feed your family and it works. So he's not you're supposed to say yes. <laughs> he's not well, going to yes, commit. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, no, but go ahead. Answer, answer that. It. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go, I want your more thoughtful pause, answer too. I want your pause. thoughtful answer Yeah. Too. Why was there a pause? So I, I lost my train of thought. So you're asking. I'm if, asking for the template. Like, so. I mean, I was a consultant pharmacist five years ago. I knew that if I did X number of beds and I got paid X amount per bed, whether it was by the pharmacy or by the nursing home, you know, I, I could generate the revenue that was equivalent to a pharmacist that works in another sector of pharmacy. Okay. Can you yeah. do that? Can you add in incident two? Maybe you're now you're spending more time. You're billing incident two. Can you add that into the mix? and have a job, like have a, a job. Absolutely. In fact, this is allowing me to provide consulting services in buildings where I'm not the formal consultant. And in many instances, I'm you know able to significantly show improvement on what their current consultant does. And uh, some facilities have wanted to hire me as the formal consultant as a result. So I think this will expand and make more opportunities for more pharmacists. There will be potentially more creativity allowed to, to put dedicate time into stuff like this. To answer your question, I think the template for me is more of like a, I had a medical group that I'm working with that I was talking to about. I told them that I want the medical group to walk into a nursing home and say, hey, let me provide the consultant pharmacist. They can come in under collaborative practice. They can uh, fix problems. They can educate the patients. They can perform CCMs and BHI and annual wellness and all this stuff. So they wanted me to build a pro forma with them. And so I took what a typical average consultant pharmacist workload is historically. And I took that typical patient caseload and I added in all these additional services and it made it so that with that traditional workload, we're able to hire two additional pharmacists and three additional pharmacy techs. So this has a great ability to expand the workforce opportunities and opportunities for clinical services for pharmacists in skilled nursing or just nursing facilities in general and assisted living, which is a frontier we, we really need to get into to start performing these types of services because there's a lot of area for improvement 
in medication management in that setting. So does that answer your question? That's a definitive yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, the population's growing. Everybody's talking about it. The elderly population's growing. There's going to be a big push for at home. I think we talk about it every episode because that's that's the reality of of America today. Taking these services, taking this mindset, what would be your focus and advice to take care of the 60 million or so seniors that are that are not in a nursing home, not in assisted living? Is there revenue opportunities for for pharmacists in that way outside of dispensing? Absolutely. I think the opportunities right now are growing and they are significant and the need is just huge. You know, I think one of the issues we run into and for, for me personally in assisted living is that, you know, I'll identify, you know, 18 meds that they don't need, but the NP keeps it because, you know, the resident, she knows they're going to raise a ruckus and say, oh, well, that's helping me with uh, this and that and this and that. One of the biggest problems we have is that these people are not educated that keeping all these meds on board creates more problems than they solve. And if we have more pharmacists able to go out there and provide this education and provide these collaborative services, not only does it help our profession, but it helps these elderly residents suffering from polypharmacy. And 66% of medication-related adverse events are preventable. Mm. And, you know, I, I know many people have probably heard me say that way too many times, but I think that's just significantly shows the area of improvement that we as pharmacists can make that we are not currently making. And, you know, I think if we can do these collaborative services in these nursing homes, in these assisted living facilities, it once again shows our value and it provides more opportunity and it, it helps our profession in general. So I don't know if that fully answered your question. But. We'll go a little bit further beyond even the, the institutional of the AL oh, to yeah, maybe yeah. IL or at home. That's right. Yes. So good point. And yes, there is another coalition as, as Chad is, is running and, and taking the lead on long-term care pharmacy at home coalition. And, you know, collaborative services such as this will provide us opportunities to provide what we, has traditionally happened in nursing homes for consultant pharmacists. Now we can start doing that for people who are at home because of the fact that these nursing homes are going to be overloaded and we won't be able to have enough beds to, to put everyone who needs long-term care in a long-term care facility. So having the collaborating with these physicians and, and providing these consulting services for people who are, are at home will be a, a growing need and a definitely growing opportunity for us to, to shine and show our value. How that's going to work, I think we're still kind of sorting out, but that's that's an exciting aspect that for me personally, I think that's an exciting future to, to look at and kind of come up with some creative new ways for pharmacists to shine and make an impact. Well, I've always felt that residents of nursing homes have a far better quote unquote pharmacy experience than people that don't live in nursing homes, which is sort of the antithesis of what everybody thinks about a nursing home. They're like, oh my God, it smells like urine. They're horrible places. No one wants to go there. But from the perspective of the services you get related to your medications, you get specialized packaging. You're arguably compliant and adherent because nurses are passing them. You have pharmacists looking at your meds every month, working with the clinical team to make sure it's safe and effective. That's not something you get everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And as we go down these roads and as Jaren, as you're 
pushing the envelope on collaborative practice and incident to billing, what we're really doing is exposing more physicians to what pharmacists do. MTM and the discussions you have with caregivers and families are exposing what pharmacists do to more people. And what ends up happening is the 60-year-old daughter that has an 85-year-old mom in the nursing home starts to go, wait a minute, why does my mom get a cool pharmacist to come in and look at her meds and make sure that it's safe and effective, but I don't get that. Yeah. Why, why don't I get that? And that's where, right. that's where the tipping point is to at-home services because then they're going to say, wait, you know, just because I live at home, I don't get this service. I have to be in a nursing home, which is already a place I don't want to go because it smells like urine and I hate it. Now you, you have opened the door for people to say, okay, yeah, you're right. You should get compliance packaging at home. You should get services that help you be more adherent to your medication. And you should have a pharmacist talking to you periodically. Yeah. Maybe it's not monthly, but periodically about your meds. I don't know if anyone's ever called a pharmacist cool, but right. to, your, to your point. Uh, <laughs> I think we're cool. <laughs> <laughs> Only pharmacists think we're cool. Jaren's uh, cool. Yeah, Jaren, Jaren, Jaren is cool. He actually is a cool pharmacist. But to your point. I, I thought I was, this is my opportunity to sit with, at the cool kids table. <laughs> <laughs> These are long-term care patients with long-term care needs and multiple ADLs. They just happen to not reside right. in a nursing home. Right. So it would be a disservice for them not to get every advantage that a nursing home patient gets, a long-term care patient gets, just because oh. of where they live. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. And there is a, a very growing area of interest for pharmacists in pharmacogenetics. And uh, yep. there's a lot of pharmacists looking to branch into that area. And it's something we literally just have to take the mantle and then run with it. That's that's our area. That's something we should be the experts on. And like you said, that's something that we that'll help us prevent adverse events down the road. And it doesn't have to be people who are elderly on Medicare B. This can be something that we start, you know, generating and, and uh, working on while they're young and identifying potential issues down the road before they ever occur. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in that arena as well. That's kind of a, a newer area. And I know that I just recently was exposed to that and the impact that can have. But can you break that down for our listeners a little bit about how to get a, they can get a DNA test basically early on. And that's good for prescriptions for their life to help them prescribe properly for life. Yeah, right now, the most pharmacists are providing these services in cash pay models. There used to be uh, one or two groups that allowed pharmacists to provide consulting services within it. Unfortunately, they didn't last long. There's always a fight, you know, a, a struggle to get payment for these services for a pharmacist for with insurance companies. But the one cool thing is that the, the lab itself is fully covered for everyone on Medicare B. The downside is it's a one-time only lab. So the problem is if we generate new data, you know, five years later, which we will, it, it won't be a covered lab anymore. And, and we're not storing the entire genome and coming back and referring to it later. That would be impossible. It's a massive amount of data that we wouldn't be able to store. So we're just pulling bits of data from that massive genome and then and then uh, identifying uh, interactions from it. But Right now, most of them are cash pay models where they get the lab drawn and then the pharmacist provides a consulting service and identifies, you know, interventions that could take place to, to help prevent this and things to look for down the road. And then they, you know, summarize that consultation to the patient and then if needed, you know, also summarize something they can give to their physician for them to have reference to as well. And those are kind of the, 
the, the primary areas right now. I did some consulting for one of the groups that had pharmacists doing it, and uh, it was a great gig until they just stopped paying for it. So, <laughs> but I will say that one of the, this is just my opinion, uh, there's been a lot of conflicting data on the uh, interaction between omeprazole and Plavix. And one of the most common genetic interactions that I ran into during my brief time of doing it was CYP2C19. And that's where clopidogrel is metabolized. So I think a lot of the conflicting data was based on where the region was and how prevalent that mutation was occurring. And so based on that, I think it's just a, an interaction we should take a little more seriously just because we don't know what their genetic profile says. So just make sure that that uh, interaction is not in place just in case. Well, Jaron, this has been awesome. I know that the coalition that we're working on together is always accepting of new members. I think there's two things we, we want pharmacists to do. One is share stories of success, you know, whether that's because you're billing incident two, because you're delivering MTM, because you've done something that saved someone's life. Stories are what get us guidance, regulation, and legislation over the line. We need stories that, that really explain what you're doing. And we also need your engagement on things like the Long-Term Care Pharmacy at Home Coalition, on the Collaborative Care Coalition. Jaron, just any comment on that, and then uh, we'll wrap up. Yes. you know, And that's another thing that was brought up with Lee's conversations with CMS uh, people is they just don't think that any pharmacists are doing this. And I know that there are plenty of pharmacists doing this. So yes, and thank you for bringing that up because I'd almost forgotten that. We need more stories from more pharmacists. And I think we're going to hopefully put together something in the near future where we have an opportunity to put a lot of pharmacists out there under the same roof to kind of share these stories. And we can put together some testimonials to bring to CMS to show them, hey, there's a huge need and a huge desire for uh, collaborative services that include a pharmacist in the, the healthcare team. And not to mention also there's a, a new initiative from CMS that's finally coming to fruition that's been uh, coming down the pipeline for a while called Making Care Primary. I think it's a three-phase trial. I think it's in eight states. And the first phase is more traditional, and then for the, the second phase will be more uh, you know collaborative and stuff like that. And so right now, the pharmacist is not even a part of the discussion. So we need more professional organizations to start making more of a push to put, you know, the pharmacist in the next phase of this trial or to, to put make a pharmacist a focal point in that collaborative effort to improve the outcomes. And like you said, we need we need more pharmacists to start taking this seriously to help show that we are capable, we are willing and we are out there making an effort. Mm, yep, for Good. sure. Jared, right. I know that uh, you and I have been on the speaking circuit here with uh, ASCP and got to see each other's presentations. And one thing that I brought up was uh, the quote from William Proctor that I knew resonated with you, which, which says, if, if a pharmacist is a mere dispenser of medicine, then he relapses into a simple shopkeeper. And, and I know that resonated with you and, and you really you know, took that and, and sent it on LinkedIn. And, and there was a lot of responses to, to that quote. And so just a, a, as we, as we leave out here, why was that such an important quote to you? What does that mean to you personally? And what does that mean for, for all of our colleagues and for future, future generations? When you think about what we need to do as pharmacists, what we need to do in this industry, how do you go about 
thinking that, man, one guy can make a difference, one, one lady can make a difference? That is a great question. And I think the key ingredient that I got out of that is my biggest point of emphasis right now in general is just diversification. Right now, I think maybe make it related to, to Tesla. You know, historically, the automotive industry was very archaic, very stuck in its way. And I think in a way, pharmacy has also become somewhat archaic and not willing to branch out of the world of strictly products, which is a wonderful thing that has been a great backbone to our profession for a very long time. But I think we've gotten in a rut where we are only thinking about products. And as a result, you know, we've failed to recognize opportunities for us to perform services. And historically, there's been so many barriers. I think we've been beaten to death so much trying to do services that uh, maybe a lot of people have thrown up their arms and given up. But just know that these opportunities are out there. And it is an opportunity and it is time for us to diversify away from strictly product-based profession and make it so that we perform the services that we have been trained to do. Otherwise, we are just a simple shopkeeper strictly managing products. And we are capable of so much more than that. And we need to show it. Yep. So I hope that answers your question. It, it does. It does. All right, Jaron. Thanks so much for being on. That was awesome. Hopefully we get a lot of members engaged, sharing stories. We know that you're going to be engaged on a variety of platforms to help people along this path to learn how to build Incident 2 and make that part of their practice. So we appreciate that and we appreciate you. Yeah, I'm just so grateful you invited me. It was a lot of fun and I I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for bringing me on. All right. We'll see everybody next time on the Our Experience podcast. See ya.